0: Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I'm joined today by Jamie Hopkins, a managing partner at Carson Group, co host of the Excellent Framework podcast, and co author of the new book, Find Your Freedom Financial Planning for a Life on Purpose, which recently gained bestseller status. Jamie, welcome to the show.
2: Daniel, thanks for having me on, my friend. Joining us from Seattle. Um, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, the the true grunge city of the world, and uh, you know, yeah, out here at FPA annual, but you know, talk about framework. We were, were shooting seventeen episodes out here in three days, which is you know nice and easy. <laughs> well, you're making, I think, I'm, I think I'm shooting six episodes at Orion Ascent in February,
1: and I was complaining about that, and I won't complain anymore. But uh, I'll
2: I'll, uh, I'll I'll keep it. I'll keep you in mind next time I want to complain. You're allowed to have your own complaints, man. You don't. You don't have to base them off of me. You know that's
1: <laughs> perfect. All right, man. Well, hey, listen. As an as a fellow author, I know uh, that the process of writing a book is difficult. I know it's time consuming. I know that it pays horribly, and the only reason anyone would ever do it is that they have something important to say. What led you down the crazy path of writing another book and what was the message of this book that that you hadn't shared before?
2: Yeah. So um, you know, talking about your books too, uh, Robert Van Beck I just interviewed. So I think he actually translated one of your books, right? Translated my book to Dutch. Yeah, Dutch. He's he is a fellow Dutch uh, you know, Netherlandian. Um, the uh, we were just talking about you know soccer teams and everything too. So that was nice. Uh, you know, for when it comes to books, I've written, well, seven books in some shape or another. Now I have three textbooks, two ebooks for Forbes, for Wirement, and then Find Your Freedom. Find Your Freedom came about in a slightly different way than all the other ones. They all have their own story. And this one was actually, I was talking to a reporter about a year ago, and they asked me for my favorite financial planning books. And I like paused for a second and was like, well, and i was trying to think through the books i like and you know, i think yours was in there and um the one from brad, uh, brad klantz was in there and i was kind of like you know these are all like behavioral books or investment books right like there's like there's a there's good and there's good retirement books too there's like shares, like there's good real estate there's some good insurance books like wade's got a great insurance book And then I was kind of like, but there's not really a great financial planning book that everyone goes to. Even the ones that like, you know, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Millionaire Next Door, How I Invest My Money. Like they tend to be investment related books. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to write a planning book. And then I had the theory that there's like, one of two things, either one, like financial planning is generally still a new profession. So obviously there's more investment books and we just haven't gotten around to really putting a good one down or nobody wants to read a planning book. And hence, that's why we don't have one that could come up to my mind. <laughs> yeah. So I started down that path and actually wrote maybe like a half of it and scrapped the whole first half. So like I didn't use anything from it. Um, It's all gone. And I wrote half a book and scrapped it and then restarted with this one and actually focus the whole first side on this idea of like defining what freedom means to you and going beyond goals to aspirations And then tied in financial planning on the back half of like one of the tools that can help you get there for the financial freedom part of it. So that's really the message is that we need to look at life less so from the investments or the strategies or the planning and purposely put that the second half and said, look, like if you can't figure out what's going to make you happy in life and where you want to be, the things you enjoy doing, like all the planning and investments and strategies are all kind of meaningless, right? Like if you just end up as a super rich, super unhappy person, like we all fail. You. yeah
1: yeah so first of all i i had a physical pain reaction to talking about writing half a book and throwing it away but indeed learning to curate and learning to edit is one of the most important and hardest things about about writing a book so it's a it's a testament to your process that that you would go through all that pain and then and then throw it away but i mean it's a testament to what what a what a unique book and and what a good book uh, it is you know, I think the listeners will get an idea of how different it is. You talk about things like fun, happiness, community—not always a part of most most of these investment books that that we think about. So I think it's it's fulfilling uh, a real niche. Let's let's start at the beginning, though. You you talk in the book about your money story. Mm-hmm. You you stress the importance of of understanding our own money scripts, our own money stories. If you don't mind, could could you tell us a bit about your story? And then share broadly why you think it's a valuable principle that that we understand our own money stories,
2: yeah. And I'll give you know a couple of people thanks on this, too. I mean, some of your work on it. I mentioned Dr. Brad Cla, Dr. Joy Leary, also somebody is great, and I've had meaningful conversations around this area with. And this is one I think the more time you spend in this profession and working in finance, the more important you realize, not just like your own money story, but probably your parents, your grandparents, your community, the environment around you has an impact on it. And so, you know, I I explored like one piece of it in the book. And up until about three years ago, I really didn't talk about this out loud. And what I just think I thought like nobody wanted to hear it, and then two it was like, "Well, you're just going to get upset, and then you can't continue on, or whatever else you have to do after that story." And you just like cry on stage, and then it gets awkward because you don't move to the next slide, and they're like, "What's happening?"
1: <laughs> what's up, Jamie?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's more like what's wrong with them right now? There's lots of things wrong with them, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, the story that I tell is like my family one about my dad is, is the biggest one. That's probably the most formative to my, you know, life path and journey, which is, you know, I, I come from, I, li- I grew up in Baltimore. I'll just tell a, a longer version of it, but I grew up in Baltimore or my, neither my dad or mom graduated from college and they, you know, essentially had their own, you know, they were solopreneurs, husband, wife team, and ran a construction company where uh, all like roofing based high up on ladders. So roof and gutters, fascia, soffit, anything like that. And my mom kind of ran the books and set appointments, those types of things. And my dad went out and uh, hung gutters and did the work. And, you know, there was a day that he went out and I would said bye to him in the morning and, you know, all of those things. And it wasn't a great weather day, kind of raining and and things like that. And uh, he was finishing up the last job of the day that he was on and uh, came down the aluminum ladder and they freeze over faster than a roof does. Right. And um, slipped and fell and, and was gone. And I actually cut some of this out in the book. I've had some people tell me I should have kept more. And you also don't try to depress people, but there there's parts of that that are you know super formative to me that I didn't add to, which was uh, you know then uh, I remember my aunt grabbing me at school and saying, "Oh, your dad's been in an accident." Well, you know I'm eight years old, so really what an accident means to me at that point is a car accident. And I remember being at home when I saw the uh, like the gutter truck, the box truck come back in and I was like, oh, the truck's fine. Like dad's probably fine. But then like kind of when I went downstairs, I don't ever remember being told that my dad was gone, but, you know, went downstairs and you could just kind of tell. Right. So then all of a sudden, um, you know, we we went to school that morning with a dad who is the breadwinner of the family and ended the day without a dad and without somebody earning money for the family. And, you know, that obviously put a lot of stress on my mom, who, you know, is an amazing human and kind of one of my heroes. And she, you know, eventually just woke up one day and said, you have to move forward and figure out how to, you know, provide for the family. She actually still runs that uh, company today. So she's kept that going for 30 some years and uh, which is just beyond amazing and i kind of talk about some of the trauma around money and that those type of struggles and yes some of the things like i don't remember even if i put this in the book but i I know i talk about it sometimes which is like i remember you know us getting by and like the social security checks but you didn't know at the time that like social security like eight-year-olds don't know that social security checks show up to you know for deceased uh you know family members with kids and the spouses with under 18 kids and you know, later on you study the world Social Security and you're like, oh, so that's where those checks came from. Like yeah. it was Social Security, like widow's checks and, and, and you know, uh, beneficiary checks. And you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like I learned that later on. And so that's part of my story. And I think that that's just then formative to like, so how do you make some of your own decisions and what trauma or abundance or scarcity do you carry with you moving into life? And some of those might be really good. Like you persevered through things and so you've built resiliency and a drive. And some other ones, like you might have negative reactions to things that you need to work on. But if you're unaware of them, it's very hard to work on them. And I think that's part of the story is, you know, it's okay wherever you are, but to kind of understand how you got there, I think is very important.
1: Now, well, first of all, thank you for your willingness to share that story here. And and certainly in the book, you know, when I think about you and, and your work ethic, I and mean, there's sort of two two things that that come to mind. First of all, you're one of the best educated people in the industry. I mean, you've got lots of lots of letters after your name. And then the second thing I think of it is just an, an intense work ethic. Like just, you know, working smart and working hard. A lot of folks do one or the other. You, you do both. When you look back at your dad's passing and, and this whole story where did those two things fit i mean was this a conscious or sort of an unconscious thing to say i'm not going to work with my hands i'm going to get a lot of education and do stuff that's safer
2: talk to me about that so uh not at all on the safer route (laughs) so like i did hang gutters and do that during summer so that's what i did growing up and uh, i actually love that stuff so i've renovated two houses now and um I'll say that I don't know that I will be able to keep a marriage through a third renovation of a house. So I think that that time of me renovating houses has come to an end, at least at least for now. Uh, but I will say Dr. David Roney will ping me every once in a while when he sees a property in Philly. And he's like, you could fix this one up. And I I have been driven by a couple. But the uh, so I actually love that work. Um, and I probably grew up in it. My uncle's grandparents are all in the construction world. And so it feels like a part of me to be handy and build things. Uh, But I would say my mom was more on that side. Like she didn't want me to be in that uh, like, you know, that profession, if you want to say industry of construction. She wanted us to go to school and be able to do something that was less dangerous and, you know, probably more fulfilling long-term could provide, you know, more safety financially and security for a family. So that was definitely my mom's. Um, The hard work probably emulated a little bit of her. I would also say though, growing up, uh, you know, the educated part that ties back to this too, like I wasn't a great student or super like so like a lot of people say, oh, like you're super smart and that must have come naturally. Like I wasn't great at school growing up, like it was a struggle. You know, by the time I got to college, I mean, I grew up in Baltimore, born in Baltimore City Hospital. Like I haven't, I hadn't written a paper by the time I got to college. The very first paper I wrote, my professor in humanities actually this was just kind of a jerk move, but I went into his office. And I guess it was so bad. He's like, I don't have any edits for this. And he literally crumpled it up into a ball and dropped it in the trash can and said, start over. So when you say about like having to restart like the book from scratch, like that was my very first paper I ever wrote. And that was tough because I like left there being like, But, like, that's as good as I could do right now, right? Like, so I do need help. Like, I have no idea how to do a better version of that. I've never done one. So, like, that was not the best approach to, like, help a student along. So, like, having them been a professor now for 12 years, like, I would never do that to somebody. Um, Because it's not helpful, right? Uh, So then my two best friends, like, I mean, basically, like... I mean, it probably counts as plagiarism or whatever. Like, they basically helped me write that first paper. Like, I had no idea, and they just sat down with me, and, you know, I mean, I think I typed it, but I think a lot of their sentences just came out of my friend's mouth, like, write this. And I was like, okay, doot-doot-doot-doot. Um, so those things kind of stuck with me, but I, I always viewed the, like, work hard as a way to overcome some of those things I didn't feel like I naturally had, or at least, like, at that point, maybe I did, but I didn't have the experiences, um, you know, to... Be able to write, and you know, like everyone had taken AP classes. I had never taken an AP. I mean, I remember people were like, ah, "I've got seventeen credits," and I'm like, "I don't know what an AP class is. I didn't have one of those." And uh, so, I felt like I was always kind of a little bit behind when I got to college. When I got to high school. When I got to law school, I felt the same way. Um, but I felt like every time, by the time I left, I felt like I had caught up to everybody. Yeah.
1: So we we know when I think about my own family of origin and and money stories. I see a lot of I see a lot of adoption, I guess, so like acceptance of of sort of the familial style. And then in other cases, I see, you know, extreme pushback, like an mm-hmm. eighty degree difference. Make a great example. my um my mom grew up in a house where my grandmother was extremely frugal, right? My grandmother grew up in the depression, right? So that's her <laughs> you know that's her money story. And so my mom grew up in this house where even though they had money, Like they were very, very thrifty. And now we sort of have this joke about my mom that she just gets you whatever she gets you. It will be the best iteration of that thing because it's like I ask for this is my favorite story. I ask for a a cast iron pan one time Christmas thinking it would be 20 bucks because that's what most of them cost. She's (laughs) 350 bucks on a pan which i'm not even sure how you do that right but like she got me some you know cast iron pan from france and i'm like mom like i just needed a thing to like cook eggs in like whatever and but it's this it's this reaction against the way she was raised she resented having off-brand stuff or sort of you know used stuff is that pretty typical that that either it's sort of a hard accept or a hard reject
2: well, I don't know. I mean, there's probably some better research than me guessing on this. So I'll just have to do like my my like disclaimer that this is anecdotal evidence and not research-backed evidence sure. with any p-value of use. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I see variations of all of it, but you do see um, you you know you adopt or that acceptance mentality of family things, and that's your experiences can help. I don't think they define you, but they help mold and shape you. And then your environment has a big To do with it too. So, you know, it's, and some of that might not be conscious, but, you know, if you were, right, grew up in an environment where you had money, but you couldn't spend it, that environment's almost like putting a limitation on you, probably in your mind. So when you can remove that limitation, you probably do, right? You're like, hey, the environment has now shifted. I can remove that limitation. And so I think there are things like that where you see generations um, shift between frugal and spending because one is putting an environmental limitation on you. And then when the environmental limitation is removed, your behavior changes. And you know, like I have some of that too. To, to like your story is like that's how my mom is. My mom is uh, the gift giver who always is buying more and more gifts. And my aunt was like that, um, who just passed away. Like when we went to her funeral stuff in the Netherlands, it was all about like her gifting and Christmas and how big of a deal. And every year she would say, yeah, "I'm going to spend less money." And I don't think I actually got how close my mom and my aunt were with that. Like they're like identical and I knew my grandmother was, but like all three of them and my other aunt, Anne, they all have adopted that. Well, now you take it one step down and like, I hate gifts. I don't like them. I think I even talked about this. I might have talked about this before with you, but I was like, you know, a lot of stuff seems backwards to me. It doesn't even make sense. Like we give people birthday presents and I'm always like, there are some cultures that do this opposite and I like that better, but like the parents should get birthday presents. Like I didn't do anything. Like I just like, I just like came into existence. It's not like, it's like, hey, Jamie, great job. It's your birthday. You did wonderful things being birthed. It's like, I didn't do anything. Like I don't deserve a gift for just coming into existence. Like, my parents raised me and created me. Like, they're actually the people that deserve a gift for that. And so I think there's things like that that, like, just logically to me never make any sense. So I don't really like receiving gifts. It makes me feel awkward. And I don't love giving gifts. And I have tried, though, to be more cognizant of the fact that, like, not everybody likes the same gifts. And that you have different love languages and different gifts resonate with different people. And I think that we've, especially in this country, have become too materialistic with our gift giving. Like when people talk about gifts, they if you mention that, most people immediately think like a thing, like I'm going to hand you an iPhone and a tablet or like a book. But most gifts should be like, I think, non-material items. And it's how most people's like love languages are more like, you know, time spent with somebody and time saving activities and experiences. And I think that we need to do a better job of being able to gift those to people and some of those financially are actually good decisions because it allows us to space out the spend instead of lumping it all together, say in December, and then having a bill due January that we can't meet in January because of cash flow concerns. Then all of a sudden we're accumulating debt and we fall behind. So, an example of that is like instead of buying a spouse, like, you know, saw a new lawnmower or something that you buy a lawn service that you just pay throughout the year. And actually, because you don't take on that debt and interest, that could become a more cost effective way than like buying the item. And that's just a bigger example of one. But I don't think people think about like cash flow around holiday seasons, because that's a really not fun topic to like think about like cash flow versus just buying gifts. Uh, But it is if you start diving into that, there's a lot of interesting nuances there uh, that you could, you know, you could explore if you get a little more time to reflect on how you give to people how how
1: dare you question consumer culture with 11 days to go until christmas <laughs> <laughs> this uh this is entirely consistent with the literature on spending and happiness right we know that mm-hmm. spending and happiness we know that we we value experiences with people we love we know we value getting out at work we dislike you know with with the lawn service but I was gonna tell people to
2: gift your book as a perfect holiday gift, but now I know better. Now, I mean, I guess you could gift the audiobook because that's an experience, right? You just get to listen to me for 14 hours. I didn't say it was a good experience, so like (laughs) But it's an experience. (laughs) We're gonna move on. We're gonna move on from
1: your from your horrifying ideas about the evils of gift gimmick. No. (laughs) We're gonna move on to, to chapter nine which I really love. Uh, it talked about the importance of investing in ourselves, which I think is perhaps the the most critical and the most overlooked piece of financial advice that's out there you know to your to your earlier point about sort of writing the financial planning book that you wish existed what why do you think we're so quick to look outside ourselves instead of inside right there's so many books on maximizing returns, but there's so little conversation
2: on maximizing the engine of our well yeah there's there's probably a i mean there's probably a great book to be written on maximizing human capital but not with those terms right and yeah. as you said like you know because if you look at short term and I think this is why short term we often have a more ability to impact like a quick investment a quick spend quick buy or a quick cutback in budgeting right so those are all things that like i can typically act on with a meaningful outcome immediately even if the return's not there yet but i i've always looked at people buy stuff with an expected return and so you think at the time of that purchase you're getting that return. So like when we invest, we don't actually think about the long-term return, we think about the expected return now. And so we believe we're buying that, right? Like if I go buy a a, a, bet, a really simple example, if I go buy a bond that's paying 4% coupon, like I do expect this return based off of that even though I don't get the return yet, right? So I've kind of bought the return. When it comes to like ourselves a lot of that i think is too far out and there's probably too many variables to always figure out what the exact return is like even talking about like going to college which i still believe is a huge and very important investment in ourselves it's very hard to like qualify what that return is gonna be monetarily. Even when you start looking at the research around going to college, it gets pretty nuanced, right? Like the college you go to matters, whether you take out a lot of debt or a little debt's gonna matter. Your um, you know, I, I talk about this some in there too, like picking the right major, like taking out debt to be cut co- you know, to go into certain majors is like a bad investment decision, you know, and I mean, we like we... psychology. Like it's a terrible one and then you go and you work at prisons and it's even worse and then you want to leave and then you go, you know, write books and play guitar. Right. And it's like, you know, was that a good investment? <laughs> it was not specific to anybody. Right. Yeah. Just by the way, that was a generic story that. Right. <laughs> no, to anyone living or dead. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, but like we can do much more micro things too. So it could be hiring a coach. Um, you know, it could be you know, doing a designation or an education program. They don't always have to have letters behind your name too. Like there's fantastic, you know, introspective programs you can do out there and weekend things to learn more about yourself. And, it, and the other thing I do talk about in the book is not always focusing on improving weaknesses, I think that's a personal investment mistake that we make a lot. Is that people say, "Hey, here's my greatest weakness. I'm going to spend all this money to improve it." And actually, there's very there's there's the research on that side suggests the opposite. That we we just have this bias to believe that it's because something is weak that there's more room to go up. So therefore, we should focus on that. But like Mm -hmm. most of the stuff, there isn't like a ceiling. So that like notion of like oh, I can improve it more just isn't true, right? It's it's like an infinite ceiling. So you're not you can't improve it more than the other one. And actually, we're probably better at our strengths. So I tend to use the football analogies there because most people in the US understand football and know who Tom Brady is. And I'm always like Tom Brady in the offseason doesn't go, you know, I'm going to invest back in myself and learn how to tackle because I'm going to throw like 12 picks this year. And it's possible that I might need to be able to tackle somebody. Like, he doesn't even try to tackle people anymore. He just walks off the field after an interception, right? He's like, there's 10 other guys who are better at that. And so I'm not going to worry about it. No, what does he do? He focuses on throwing the ball. He focuses on studying film. So he invests back in himself every offseason and gets better at his craft, but focuses on what he's good at and then delegates out the other responsibilities to people who are better at that. And so I think that as you get more nuanced into investing in yourself, it is start to invest in the things that you have the biggest impact in. And that's going to have your best return, not always chasing the things you're not good at.
1: Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of wisdom here. First of all, you got to get that educational base in place. But the research shows that after the sort of the the fundamental educational hurdles have been cleared, it's really a lot more about EQ than IQ. And your interpersonal skills are going to make or break your rise to the top faster than your than your technical chops will. And that's I think a reality that some people have a hard time getting their getting their arms around. It doesn't feel fair or something, but it, it you know it is what it is. And I, I like the piece about about working on your strengths too. Just just knowing that like knowing again your story, your money story, your personal story. There's probably things you're never going to do well, and I think Tom Brady and tackling is the perfect the perfect metaphors for that.
2: Yeah, well, I think he said recently, like he's like, I'm a really good athlete, I just can't run and jump. <laughs> 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 and uh, I was like, yeah, that's a, that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's another thing. So you, so you talk about emotional uh, intelligence, and you know, the other one that we talk about a lot is uh, AQ, which is adaptability quotient. I don't know that there's as much research on individuals there. I know that there's some. There's a lot on the business side of the world, which actually tends to a lot of business concepts do apply to individual behavior too, because businesses are just a bunch of individ- a bunch of individuals behaving, right? Um, But if you look at, and that was a McKinsey study that showed that companies that reallocate budget, I think over 25% to new initiatives each year have more than 50% growth than the companies that don't reallocate budget every year. So like, and that's the like, are you constantly adapting? And, you know, you're keeping a core, but are you constantly adapting on the- Fringes of yourself to push and change and develop, you will grow more than those that kind of just stay true to the course that never moves. And so that's kind of pushes into that adaptability: can you change? And I think it gets to grit too, right? Can you overcome things and keep pushing forward while adapting?
1: Yeah, keeping somewhat on this theme of self improvement and self care, you know, I think another place where your book adds some important new dialogue to the conversation is in chapter 12 it touches on health as a major component of wealth, and i i feel like i hear a lot of financial professionals giving Mm. high level lip service to this but i don't know that much is happening beyond that do you ever think i think we're we're seeing a broadening scope of the type of services advisors provide Mm -hmm. i think that you know, as the financial side of the house gets more and more automated and more and more uh, technologized, that I think the scope of what an advisor does will grow. Do you ever see a world in which financial advisors begin to take more of an active role in sort of talking about and monitoring
2: health outcomes of their clients? Or is that sort of beyond the pale? Uh, No. So it's actually already starting to occur. So I will add maybe three or four things here um that i that have occurred inside the carson ecosystem i do know one other advisor that does this too um we actually have a couple advisory practices that have brought in what i would say is like strategic partners i don't know uh, whatever you want that's way too much majority term but i'm just going to use that for now that come in and help their clients and actually i do know one that has a doctor that is uh, on essentially on call for their clients, and they actually will go and meet with them and do more like health planning. So it's not like going to a physical, they actually work with them on kind of a health plan for their life. And that's wrapped into this planning fee that they pay. They have access to that and a couple other things. I, my guess is probably within the next two years, we will probably centralize more of that inside of Carson. Ron's really big on this. Um, he's been talking about for a couple of years that that concierge level um, kind of healthcare being wrapped into financial planning is so important. Yeah. And um, I know uh, we have a mental health professional that is on essentially, not on staff, but, it, you know, has a contract with us. And we have had that person meet with clients before, and we have had them meet with stakeholders. So we've wrapped that into the Carson Wealth side at Carson too. Now, those are, say, it's like, you know, that's a very small percentage. We have 45,000 households we serve. And what is it Like a hundred probably have ever interacted with them. So we're talking about an infatestly small group that's actually seeing that. Now, if you take that one step further, we know that like workplace healthier clients that are less stressed or more productive is good for the business. There was a really, really good publication, and I, I, I'm a, I drawn a blank on the name of the publication. I at least know who did it, but the Foundation for Financial Planning um, had a, they helped sponsor a research project around blood cancer and then uh, kind of, you know, people who got that pro bono financial planning and financial assistance and the people who didn't. And it actually significantly changed the, you know, the survivor rates of cancer. And I think it's like 18% higher survival chance if you have cancer, if you end up getting planning during that process and financial support. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's like way, it's like a huge amount. I mean, it's literally like, if you think about the, you know, how many people in the world have Blood cancer of some type or cancer. And part of it is that financial stress of going bankrupt and running out of money and all those issues. Even if you have health insurance, it tends to deplete like half the people's additional savings. And so having a plan in there literally can change lives. So if you think about the marrying of those two things seems super important that they shouldn't be siloed off from each other because Mm -hmm. good planning will actually save people's lives. So if we have a good understanding of the health side, and can put that into the planning side. And the more they can come together, literally people live better lives and longer. I mean, I don't know that you can come up with a better thing than that, It's like, that's the reason, right? Like, I don't know, like, you know, insurance companies, like, oh, it saves premiums and it's less expensive. Like, cool. Like, those are nice benefits. This one keeps people alive that have cancer. Like, that seems pretty good. So that seems like a strong argument in favor of bringing these together over time these numbers like it almost it almost seems like
1: science fiction but it's incredible how powerful the mind body connection is and how getting one part of your life right can materially improve seemingly disconnected other parts of your life i really look forward to the day when financial advisors are sort of more of a quarterback for wellness broadly understanding that money touches every part of wellness. And and I think that's going to be, I, I think so many advisors are well positioned to step into that role. And I, I love to see, you know, Carson and others in the industry headed that way. Uh, Jamie, my, my, my favorite book from a few years ago was called Lost Connections. And there's a quote that reminded me of one of your chapters, and uh, it was the chapter on the power of community. So the quote was, The internet was born into a world where many people had already lost their sense of connection to each other. The collapse had already been taking place for decades by then. The web arrived offering them a kind of parody of what they were losing. Facebook friends in place of neighbors, video games in place of meaningful work, status updates in place of status in the world. The comedian Mark Marin once wrote that every status update is just a variation of a single request. Would someone please acknowledge me? So I absolutely love this book, if you if you can't tell. And it feels like we're living in a world where we are simultaneously better connected in some ways because of technology, or at least connection is facilitated. But also, all of the research is showing that we're lonelier and lonelier, right? I mean, there was a study out this year that talked about the number of people whose, whose friends were, were, had, had zero friends, like reported having zero friends, and it was a staggering number. And it was up like 30% from just a few years ago. Talk to us about the place of community in creating a, a life of financial wellness and how people can be intentional about creating community in, in a disconnected world?
2: That's a big question there.
1: <laughs> well, so, that's the only kind we ask on the show.
2: Yeah, so like, I think community is incredibly important. And I, I mentioned this in Find Your Freedom because one thing that community <sighs> that I've realized does is shows people that they can accomplish something and they're worthy of accomplishing it. And sometimes I use it in a joking way, but usually you're in a community... And so we were talking about um, cancer already. So cancer survivors and people going through that, they see other people who survived and it gives them the hope that they can also do it. And they say, you know, you know, Daniel did it so I can do it. Um, and it's like writing a book. You see somebody write a book. You say, you know what, I can do that, too. In a running club, somebody runs a marathon, you realize that you then can do it, too. So it gives people this hope that they can accomplish things that solo they otherwise not might not believe that they can do. And so I think that's a super powerful part of community. Then along that way, you're going to run into hurdles where you're going to you know, question whether or not you could do something or whether you're worthy to do something. And that's where a really good community can come in and support you through that. And I do say a good community because in the book I talk about this, there are bad communities too. Typically, we use that word community and everybody's like, hey, that's a great thing, your community. Well, there are negative communities too, and we end up in negative communities. And we end up in communities that might be bad for our finances or bad for our health. You know, if you're, if you, you know, were in a fraternity and then stayed in that community for your whole life and you just kept going to, you know, rush every year and you're 65 years old, like that is probably bad for you, right? Like now I know there's going to be like, I was in a fraternity, so I'm not putting down that, but like there are aspects of that you shouldn't continue for your whole life, right? And if that community keeps you in that type of drinking to excess and staying out too late and eating poorly, that's a negative community. And we end up with purposeful and you know I say accidental communities. Um, you could say purposeful or unintentional, but I like that accidental. Like there's some that we fall into. There's some we're born into. There's some we can't change. Right, your family you can't just remove that completely. You can mitigate it and move to the side of it, but there's still things that'll probably have impacted you from it. Yeah. And uh, but I think it's important to challenge ourselves or like what are good community communities that we're in and what are negative communities, and then. If you want to accomplish something, find the community that could help get you there. Now, to the other point you asked, which was, how do we foster this sense of community? And I actually agree. I think community is getting harder today. My assumption is a lot of stuff has a pendulum swing, that things go back and forth, that some communities get stronger, some get weaker over time. I'm sure that there's some other point in history that two people are sitting around being like, oh man, the community has really gone away here. And like, you know, then it came back. But I think we're going through one of those transitions at least in the United States. I don't know about every country because um, we see that loneliness and disconnected. And you can see it in like the trade associations out there in the world too, that they're all shrinking. And it's not just like financial services, it's legal, it's, that uh, you know, CPAs, like they're all getting smaller. And they're kind of going away right there's a lot i mean i don't know the number that have gone away but they're disappearing and those their foundation were just communities of people that got together uh some of that's moved online you know i think FinTwit for a while was a really interesting community um i know you've been part of that and i've met a lot of great people from there that'll probably move someday to some other platform whether it's a TikTok community you know one day you know it will shift and So I think finding your place there. And then I also talk about, like, what role do you want to play in a community, right? Like, you can also play a role in a community where you're bringing and connecting others to it, or you can be the one that's being connected to, right? You could be a driver of the community. You can be a follower in the community. And you can actually determine some of those roles. Like, how do you want to play in community? And that's something that I've shifted. For a while, I always was just looking for what community did I feel like I wanted to belong to. And probably a little bit like you, we now have the ability to shape some of these communities and we can bring people into them, right? Like, you know, that's part of like the privilege of, you know, having some career success, at least in the eyes of others, and having been around now for some time and know people and been part of the community is that we can also form some of it. And I think more about that now is like, what is my role in the formation of this? So, you know, I, I launched the nonprofit like two years ago, FinServe Foundation. And just this week, I know some of the numbers, but we have put like 110 college students into that scholarship program inside of FinServe that now get coaching. And we have taken 81 students to three different conferences over the last three months. And that's like a crazy number to me, like 81 Students we took to FBA and Excel and Women's Represent Conference and in different amounts. And, like, you know, that didn't exist two years ago. And that was something that I decided that, like, hey, like I can be part of forming a different sense of a community that I think is really needed out there. So I think those things are questions we don't always ask ourselves about the community. Do you want to be a leader? Do you want to be a follower? Do you want to partake in it? Do you want to bring others into it? But what role do you play in your community? Especially professional ones is a super important question to ask. We might ask ourselves that more in like our close family community. Like, what role do you have? I put away laundry. I do this, but you can also do those same things inside of your other communities. Yeah, you know, the the two points I'm taking there, I I do agree that
1: we talk about community in sort of an unequivocally good good way, and. Just as surely as you can see it to be it in in a positive way, you know, you talk about running a marathon or something. The people you surround yourself with materially impact the way you move through the world. And so, if you find yourself in the midst of a community that's not worth being in, maybe it's time to move on. And I like the idea of you know, rather than being the two guys who sort of be- bemoan the the fall of the fall of community and the increasing disconnectedness of the kids these days, like. You know, get out there and start a, start a community like you have that, that can do some real good in the world and, and be thoughtful about your role in it. You know, Jamie, though, the, the last question for you, Orion, um, we did some research recently that we'll be sharing early next year. And it's, uh, it's all around people's financial values. And, and one of the things we looked at was what couples disagree about when they disagree about money. And we found that this, the, the single biggest point of, of disagreement. Was whether money was best used to uh, secure an uncertain future, mm-hmm. or to sort of have fun today, to sort of seize seize the moment, or to or to buy some security for for an unknown an unknown tomorrow. You talk in the book about the need to have more fun, and again, I think that's just another another way that your book is unlike any uh, financial planning book I've read. Is you don't you know? There's not a lot of chapters on fun in that in the average financial planning book. Can you talk about the need to have more fun and sort of juxtapose it with this research that we've done that says maybe maybe some people are having too much fun? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so look, I think there's some things. I still wrote probably at its core financial planning book, and I think there are some really beautiful differences in it. But like, you've you've done this before, you write a book and when you talk about them, like, you know, I probably should have just told like some way more fun stories that are like ridiculous, right? Like, so like Halloween is one of my most fun things. I do talk about my love of Halloween in there. But I have like 40 some kids at my house and I dress up like Jack Skellington and they chase me around and I give them presents and candy. Like it's like this whole like big thing I've created uh you know back home and i think it's the third year of doing that because we started it during covid because we couldn't we didn't go trick-or-treating and then we did the next year and then this year it's like two of the classes of my kids schools all came and then like one of the kids parents told me that the kid thinks that that's like core to halloween now is that jack skellington shows up to everybody's house and is who gives out the candy right he's had three halloween experiences of this and like that is like like, but like that is fun, right? Like that gets me so excited. And like, that doesn't cost a whole lot. Right. And so that gets back to the other point is like, look, like we can also figure out ways to have fun and enjoy things that don't always mean that we have to spend more, right? A lot of fun. Like if you probably name your five most fun experiences in life, they probably are not your five most expensive experiences. No, no doubt. (laughs) Right. Um, but to the other point about like families spending money today versus the future, there's a reality that like we do also have to consume today um, because we're here today and the future, that person might not be there. There's this research um, uh, at a UCLA uh, which was about connectedness to your future self, which is one of my favorite concepts. And I always butchered this one like I, I know I like I' this is a game of telephone and I'm boiling it down but that we think about our future self more like a third party stranger than we do ourselves today. So like, like me meeting somebody on the street and passing them, that's more about how I think of like myself in 30 years. I don't know them. I don't even know if I'm gonna like them. I don't feel connection. And then how Hirschfield and uh, a couple others have done research in there, that how do you close that gap between yourself and that future self? And you actually can become more connected to them so things like like physically visioning um like where they do age photos of yourself that actually creates this connection with your future self and people will save more for that person almost any financial planning goal we have can be represented in a visual way. And so there's multiple different ways that they've been able to show that this works too. So like, if you talk about saving for college, don't just have like goal two, save for college. Like put their alma mater there or whatever their favorite school is and put the actual picture there. Their kid might not go there, but it creates this connection to them about that goal. So it's not saving for a nebulous thing in the future. It's saving for a concrete thing that we can envision today. Um, So there are kind of like, I don't know if you would say those are tricks, but there's you know there are things we can do to improve that outcome to get people on the same page there. And then I, I do talk about this in the book. And I'd say the research here is um, okay but not great, which is like the goal-setting process, like one, how effective are goal-setting in general and people following through. Um, but the one thing that we have found is that if you set goals in the future, then work backwards from them, that does improve the likelihood that somebody follows through with it. So that's like, hey, I want to retire in 30 years with a million dollars, that really generic thing. But then talk about like, what did you do the month before, right? And what did you do the year before that? And it's just a small change in the way we think about it. And from some of the researchers I've talked to is the theory there is that we have shifted the anchor point from today, like, oh, we got to start saving today. But the anchor point then is my life today. I've anchored around my current consumption in life. And now you've got to make me change versus anchoring in that future point and then working back from it. So the the kind of theory is that we create a different anchor spot that we work off of when coming back. And actually, in the sports world, that's what's more common, that Sports athletes start with the future thing, and then they work back on how you're going to get there. Um, I, Michael Phelps I grew up swimming with, and that was his. Him and Bob Bowman said he's going to be the most decorated Olympian a- athlete of all time, and what were all the steps that they needed to do coming back from that, right? Like, you weren't going to do that in one Olympics. So what did you do the Olympics before? And what did you do before that one to prepare for it and the one before that? And so I think that change and process for people is super important. Don't just set the goal and lay out the path set the goal, work back from it. So you're just going to casually throw in that you used to swim with Michael Phelps. Just casually drop that one in there. Yeah. I love it. But he went, he went and collected gold medals and I went and collected designations. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) both, both so accomplished in your own right. So, you know, I, I, love that the, the psychological term for what you're talking about is salience, right? Like increasing the salience or the vividness of, of the experience. You know, if you look at the research on risk, one of the things that we see about risk is that people tend to a- answer an easier question. So I, I give the I give the example of boating. You know, if you ask someone, "Hey, do you want to go water skiing with me or whatever?" You know, they'll go, "Yeah, of course!" Like, "Yeah, I'd love to go. I'd love to go boating." Well, boating is super dangerous. Like, if you look at if you look at the stats, boating is super dangerous. But like, how many how many times have we met someone who said? You know, you tell them you work in finance and they go, oh, Wall Street's a casino. I don't do that. You know, I keep my money in a mattress or whatever. And I mean, investing, diversified investing over the long term is not dangerous at all, historically. And yet it's, what's the difference? Why does boating seem safe and investing seem dangerous? Well, boating is fun. And, you know, have, you know, people are not answering the question, is it dangerous? They're answering the question, is it fun? which is easier to ascertain. So I think if we could make the planning process more engaging, more vivid, more fun, people would be much more willing to engage. They'd have an easier
2: time investing and we'd be a lot better off. Well, I guess the only challenge there though is like, you know, they made boating super fun, but then a bunch of people die and Robin Hood made investing super fun for a little while. And Well,
1: yeah, but we we need to make sensible planning fun.
2: Yeah, we, we as soon as you added sensible to it, you made it not fun. You realize that, like <laughs> nobody's like, we should do sensible boating. <laughs> <laughs> let's have carrot. Let's make carrots and
1: broccoli fun. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I do think there's a way that we can make it more interesting than it is today, more vivid than it is today. Uh, we'll leave the word sensible out, but. <laughs> Anyway, Jamie, this has been awesome. Thank you for taking a break from your 17 uh your 17 podcast episodes. If uh if folks want to buy the book, if they want to learn more about your work, where can they find you?
2: Yeah. So super quick. I'm pretty responsive on Twitter at retirement risks. Website is jamiehopkins.com. Carson is carsongroup.com. And the book is pretty much everywhere. So you can just type in find your freedom, Amazon, Barnes, Noble, Target, anything like that is pretty much everywhere. And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out uh, to me at any point. Happy to sign books or talk about it. You can tell me that you don't like it. All of those things are good with me. No.
1: Beautiful. Congrats on the success of the book and uh, wonderful to have you back. Thank you, buddy. And I'll see you uh,
2: probably at your conference later this this next year. (laughs) You got to send. All right.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.